John writes, verse 1 of chapter 3, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In order to become a part of a family, one of two things has to take place. One way, the most common way of becoming a part of a family is that you are born into the family. The second way that you can become a part of the family is through adoption. Now, students of Scripture will recognize that what is true in the physical realm is equally true in the spiritual realm. To be a part of God's family, you must be born into his family, and the Bible also describes our adoption into the family of God. And really, to be born into God's family is to be adopted into God's family. So in order to become a part of God's family, you must be born into it. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying in the text. In order to become a part of God's Family, you must be born again. Now, last week I described several pictures used in the New Testament that help us understand the nature of the church. And the last picture that we looked at was that of the church as a family. The church is pictured in the New Testament as the family of God. And I'll remind you once again of those words of St. Clair Ferguson who said, family is what the church is is. It is not a social club. It's not like any other earthly organization. It is the family of God. We all, in a sense, have the same parentage. We all have been born from above if we are in the family of God. You say, well, how did I become a part of God's family? You became a part of God's family by his sovereign choice. And let's just think about this in terms of being born into a physical family. None of us had anything to do with selecting our families. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose the time or the day that we would be born. You were born into the family that you were born in through the direct creative activity of God. It was God who gave your parents the ability to have children. You simply showed up on the scene at the appointed day and time that God had appointed in eternity past. And what is true of being born into a physical family is equally true of being born into, a, into God's spiritual family, if I can put it that way. Uh, in other words, 
in order to become a part of God's family, you must undergo a second birth. That is what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You get into God's family, not by your baptism, not by church membership, not by your acts of kindness, not because you signed a church covenant, not because you passed the interview. You get into God's family when you are born again, when you have been born from above, when you have been the recipient of the supernatural divine activity of God in giving you the new birth. Now, this morning, all I would like to do, I'm not going to do a complete exposition of this text. I just want to draw out several observations that will help us in our understanding of how this relates to becoming a part of the church. Here's the first observation. That is, the, we see here the universal need for all to be born again. The universal need for all to be born again. Now, unfortunately, that phrase born again has been terribly misused and abused for the past probably or 30 years. For 40 years. Preachers have abused it. Politicians have abused it, continue to abuse it, and even some so-called celebrities abuse it and misuse it. And so they have created so much confusion as to what it means to be born again, of what the Bible actually means about the new birth. And I'll deal with what the new birth is here in just a few moments. But you may be wondering why it is that there's a universal need for all to be born again. Well, the reason that we all have to be born again, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, there's that word again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What are the wages of sin? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. And what is the result of, it, of, of us all having sinned? Death. Both physically as well as spiritually. Though you were born alive physically, you were at the same time born spiritually dead. You had physical life when you came into this world, but you did not possess any kind of spiritual life. You entered this world in a state of spiritual death. That's why Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. All those who are not in Christ, all of those who have not been born again, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are spiritually dead. There is no spiritual life in them. There is no divine spark in them. They are spiritually dead. Likewise, uh, the spiritual death alienated us from God. And again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Remember that you were at that time when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Then likewise, in Colossians 1.21, Paul reminds us, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's what we were before we were born again. And until and unless a person is born again, that's who they are. They are spiritually dead. They are alienated from God. They are separated from God. They know nothing of the life of God. They are not a part of the family of God. They have no right to call God their father. They cannot appeal to God as their father. Why? Because they have not been born again. You must be born again. And you must come into God's family through a sovereign act of God. You can't show up one day and simply say that or simply declare that you're now part of the family. 
You can't storm the walls of the kingdom and attempt to enter it by force. You can't kick down the front door and announce your arrival. So here's what I want you to do this week in your discipleship. Would you please ask one another with all seriousness, with all earnestness, in your discipleship, I want you to ask one another, have you been born again? Not have you been baptized, not are you a member of the church, was your grandma and grandpa Christians, have you personally been born again? We need to ask each other that. Say, why do I say that? Well, why would, why would, you, say, you, know, why would you say that to people who are in church this morning and many of us are in weekly discipleship, why would you ask us to, to ask another person that? Well, notice from the text who Jesus told that he must be born again. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, in our day and age, a Pharisees, you know, is pretty much a derogatory term. But in that day, not so much. These were people who had dedicated their lives to God. These were people who studied the law of God. These were people who knew the law of God. These were people who gave their tithes and their offerings. These were people who were faithful to the synagogue. Yet Jesus says to that man, you must be born again. You say, what's the point? The point is, although Nicodemus was a religious man, although he's a very disciplined man, Although he studied the law of God, and with all his might and effort like Paul, he strove to obey the law of God, and he considered himself to be part of the people of God, yet what does Jesus say to him? Well, again, in verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, I say to you, religious man, I say to you, studious man, I say to you, disciplined man. I say to you who goes to the synagogue every week, I say to you, unless one, that includes you and everybody else, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says that to a very religious man. He would, Nicodemus would probably put many of us to shame by his self-discipline, by his daily devotions. By his prayer life. And yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. See, Jesus knew that Nicodemus was counting on his self-righteousness. He was counting on his supposed ability to be able to please God through his self-effort. Through his attempt to obey the law of God. He thought that he could... Do enough good in order to settle his sin debt with God. And Nicodemus is like so many others who still exist today, who sit in the pews of churches today, who go to the mega churches of today. They think that they, through their own good works, through their own self-righteousness, that they are not nearly as bad as others, that because of that, God will look favorably upon them and God will usher them into heaven one day when they die. Churches are filled with people who are attempting to please God through self-righteousness, through their kindness, through the fact that they said that they are a member of a church, through believing that they're good enough to merit salvation and eternal life in heaven. But listen to what Jesus says 
You must. You must. It's not an option, Nicodemus. You must be born again. To become a member of God's family, to become part of God's kingdom, you must be born again. Jesus did not point to the disciplined lifestyle of Nicodemus and say, keep it up, fella. You're doing good, buddy. Just keep on praying, keep on studying, keep on going, keep on giving. No, Jesus says, you must be born again. And what's the clear implication of our Lord's words? The implication is that apart from being born again, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. Apart from being born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. As he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. By the way, let me just, just as an aside, the kingdom of God is not the church. The church comes, the church is created out of the kingdom of God. You can study that on your own sometime. And there's a real danger of thinking that you are a part of God's family when in reality you're not. If you would take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to read some verses there in just a moment. But in Matthew 22, Jesus relays the account. He, he, he tells this story and he says, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son. Jesus then goes on to tell them about a king who sent his servants to fetch those who had been invited to the feast, but they wouldn't come. So the king makes a second attempt to get the invited guests to come to the wedding feast. He sends his service back out, his service back out and he told them to tell them, hey, the meal has been prepared. It's a glorious feast. It's a grand feast. It's a feast unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life. All that you have to do is accept my invitation and come. Come and eat. But not only did they not come to the feast, Jesus said they also killed the king's messengers. So the king said to his servants, listen, those who keep rejecting my invitation, they're simply not worthy of me. They're not worthy of my invitation. So go out and invite as many others as you can. Find and invite them to come to my son's wedding feast. That's what his servants did. And Jesus said that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But there's a problem with one of the guests. Look at verse 11 of Matthew 22. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Now notice the man. He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. chosen excuse me. What's the point? All were invited to the feast, but they had to come on the king's terms. If the man who had been invited wanted to come to the king's table, he had to be properly dressed. And notice that the king asked him, Hey, how did you get in here without the proper wedding garment? The implication here is that the king provided the appropriate garment for all the invited guests. But here was a man 
who decided that he could come to the feast on his own terms. He decided he could dress for success as he saw it in his own mind. He decided that what he had was good enough. That he was good enough apart from the provided wedding garment to be at the king's feast. He tried to deny that the scriptures teach that human righteousness is no better than filthy rags in the eyes of God. So his garment of self-righteousness was unacceptable to the king. And how did the man respond to the king's question? This is so important. How did the man respond to the king's question? He didn't. Jesus said, and he, the man who thought he could come in his own terms with his own righteousness, was speechless. Listen, listen. All you who want to argue with God, all you who want to accuse God, all of you who say, God, your way doesn't make sense to me. I want to try it my own way. You can say all of that now. You can protest loudly now. You can demonstrate loudly now. You can question all you want now. But listen, one day when you stand before your maker and you haven't been born again, guess what? Your mouth will be clamped shut tight because you will know that you have made a serious error and you have nothing to say for yourself. The man was speechless. In the presence of the king, all bravado was gone. All attempts at self-justification rang hollow. His mouth was stopped. And his experience will be the experience of all who reject the invitation of God to salvation. Their mouths will be stopped. They will be speechless. Paul writes in Romans 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen, those are serious words. I'm afraid many of those people who continually question God and say, I've got this doubt, I've got this thing, they're really, they don't want, to, they don't want what God offers. And so they try and make themselves feel better by playing some kind of intellectual gymnastics with God. And they, they think that somehow they've claimed the moral high ground, that they are okay, that they're, they're smarter than God. Well, go right ahead, go down that trail, but that trail leads to hell. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what is the, what is the wedding garment that is, is acceptable to the king? Well, the king in this story represents God, and the only wedding garment that is acceptable to God is the righteousness of Christ. Let me read you from Revelation chapter 7. After this, I, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? 
And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Everyone in this great multitude in John's vision, all without exception, are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. They are wearing robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, which is a reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. James Montgomery Boyce writes, What is the wedding garment? It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, of course. It is that perfect righteousness that God provides freely to all who repent of sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. I, my biography of the week this week is of George Whitfield. And this theme of you must be born again was one of his dominant themes of his preaching. If you don't know Whitfield, he was perhaps the greatest English-speaking evangelist of the 18th century. And in one of his sermons, he said, The doctrine of our regeneration or new birth in Christ Jesus is one of the most fundamental doctrines of our holy religion and is the very hinge of which the salvation of each of us turns. Whitfield constantly preached, and he preached to tens and tens of thousands of people in days of no PA out in the fields. And his constant theme was, you must be born again. He constantly preached the universal need for all to be born again. And he was asked by someone one time, why do you continually tell us we must be born again? You know what he said? You must be born again. So there's a universal need for all to be born again. Second observation. A person is born again only through the supernatural work of God. Now, the word that is translated again here in English, in the Greek, comes from a word, uh, I think I'm pronouncing this right, anothen. The A-N-O means above, and the suffix then Excuse me, uh, again, and then the suffix means from above. So I, I totally messed that up. Here's what Jesus is teaching You must be born again, but you must be born again from above. In other words, he's ruling out all other options. There's only one way to get into the kingdom. There's only one way to get into God's family. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born through a supernatural act of God. Therefore, that means that the new birth is not something that we do for ourselves. There are no acts of contrition that we can do in order to bring about the new birth. There are not enough good works that we can do that will bring about the new birth. There's absolutely nothing that we can do that will bring about the new birth. And just as we do not bring about our own physical birth, we can't bring about our spiritual birth. It's not of our own doing. It is the work of God's grace. It is His gift of salvation. Leon Morris observes, entry into the kingdom is not by the way of human striving, but by that rebirth which only God can effect. And Satan has deceived millions and millions and millions of people who think 
that through their acts, through their sacrifice, that they can please God and gain entrance into the kingdom. But they are in bondage to their sin. They cannot be delivered by any physical action. As one commentator explains, being born again is not a decision you make. Whoever you are, however you came to Christ, you have been the object of God's supernatural work on your heart. That's why we sing songs of loudest praise. Because this is nothing that we have done. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. One final question, one final observation. How do we know if we've been born again? How do we know if we've been born again? Well, the new birth is revealed by its effects. Look at verse 8. Here's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. As I said earlier, that phrase born again, a born again Christian, a born again believer, has been grossly distorted. Many people will still, will still say, even in our increasingly secular culture, many people will still say, yes, I, I'm born again. I'm a born again Christian. But in reality, what they are saying has nothing to do with what Scripture means. What they are saying is, yeah, I've had some kind of spiritual experience. You know, people will say, you know, I've read accounts of people say, you know, I was, I was in, I was in a, a church, I was in a cathedral, and I was standing in front of the, the stained glass, and the light shone through the glass, and oh, it was just wonderful, it was glorious, and they consider themselves to be born again. I had a lady tell me one time that uh, she took a nap on her couch, and I'm not making fun. She took a nap on her couch, and when she woke up, she just knew that she was born again. See, there's all kinds of people thinking that they're born again, but they're attributing the new birth to anything but what the Bible says it is. But, but having some kind of religion, religious experience is not the same as being born again. And the problem with many who make this claim, I don't care if it's Justin Bieber or some professional athlete, or some politician. The problem for many who make the claim to be born again is that there has been no real change in their lives. This is one of the great curses of the church today. There's very little preaching about holiness of life. You must be born again, and when you're born again, guess what? Your life changes. For instance, there's many who claim to be born again, but there's very little difference, if any difference at all, in their lives and in their lifestyles. For instance, many who claim to be born again, there's no difference as, uh, as, uh, in their lives according to uh, their sexual sin, their conduct in marriage, the way they use their time, the way they use their money, and their ambitions in life. Many people claim to be born again, but there's absolutely no evidence that they have been born again. 
They're no different from the culture around them. They're no different from what they were before they claimed to be born again. See, and this is a real problem because according to Scripture, if you have not been changed, if, you have not be, if you've not been changed, you've not been born again. Regardless of what kind of spiritual experience you may have had. And let me say this. Let me say this. Regardless of some prayer you may have prayed at some point in your life. I grew up in an atmosphere that at times they would bring in an evangelist and he could work up the crowd. He could stir up the emotion. I, I know I could give you the name of one evangelist. I won't do it. That I grew up with who went to one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in America and through his emotional style of preaching convinced the worship leader that he wasn't a Christian. Despite all evidence to the contrary, just because he just, just made him make some kind of, made him, you know, the, the same guy, I heard the same guy say this in a church service. If you're not 100% sure of your salvation, you're 100% lost. Wow. He is just condemned to hell many of the greatest saints throughout church history because many of them doubted, had doubts about their faith at times. Have you had doubts about your faith? I have. So it's not based upon some magic prayer that you say. If you'll just repeat after me. No. No. To be born again, Paul says, is to be created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what are some evidences that we can look for in our lives to see whether or not we've been born again? Well, I'm going to defer to the great... Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. And as I work through this list, please, I beg you, whether you're here or at home, I beg you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you if these individual pieces of evidence are in your life. First, Spurgeon said, the first evidence is faith in Christ and his gospel. So well, that seems pretty basic. Well, those who are born again have come to Jesus for their salvation. Not anything else. Not anyone else. Not any other religious leader. Not any other religious system. They have come to Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Additionally, they believe the Bible and defend the doctrines of the Bible. They have come to, an, to the end of themselves. They have cast aside any notion that they can earn their way to heaven they have dispossessed themselves of the notion that they deserve heaven. They have come to the place where they realize that Jesus is their only hope of heaven. Second, Spurgeon said there is repentance from sin. Spurgeon declares sorrow for sin is one of the surest signs of the new nature. Sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin, not that you got caught in a sin. Sorrow for sin. Sorrow that you have offended a holy, righteous God. You're sorry about that. Those who are born again do not merely hate the misery that results from their sin, but they hate the sin itself. And I ask you, do you hate sin? Have you made peace with sin? Do you coddle sin? Do you indulge in sin? 
Be careful. Be careful. Those who have been born again, they hate sin. Do you hate what sin has done in your life? Do you hate what sin has done to the lives of those that you love? Are you fighting hard against the law of sin that resides within you? Is there genuine sorrow in you over sinning against a holy, righteous God? Thirdly, prayer. Spurgeon said the first thing I said about the Apostle Paul after his spiritual birth was that he prayed. He prayed. Behold, he is praying. Listen, the desire to pray is a sign of spiritual life. Let me say that again. The desire to pray is a sign of spiritual life. Prayer is you having the desire to fellowship and have communion with God. Your desire is not to pray just so you can get things. God is not your heavenly slot machine where you pop in a couple quarters of prayer, yank the handle, and hope your answer comes out at the bottom. Prayer is you and I being ushered into the very presence of the king of the universe, the sovereign ruler of the universe, and he deigns us to come before him, bow before him, humble ourselves before him, but at the same time plead our case with him, worship him, seek comfort from him. And because prayer is a sign of life, your flesh, that law of sin that dwells within you, will fight you. It will do everything it can to keep you from praying. You have to fight to pray. The hardest thing that I do in my studies is pray. You have to fight for that. You have to buffet your body. You have to beat those fleshly desires of your body down. You beat them into submission. You say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to pray. Spurgeon sums up the effects of new birth as the possession of a new life with new desires, an interest in God, a love for his people, a joy in worship, and a hunger for God's word. I ask you, are those things evident in your life? Like we talked about in the very first message in this series on worship, the psalmist delighted to come to the house of God. The psalmist delighted to be with the people of God. It wasn't dreary for him. It wasn't drudgery for him. He delighted to do those things. Do you look forward to Sunday? Do you look forward to being with the people of God? This is my favorite day of the week. I unabashedly, unashamedly say that. This is the day that I look forward to. This is the day that my life revolves around. J.C. Ryle explains the new birth this way. It is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts a new principle from above. So I ask you, I plead with you, have you been born again? Do you see the evidence in your life that you have been born from above? Or are you like the improperly dressed man who tried to get into the wedding feast by thinking that he was good enough, that he didn't need what the king was ready and willing to provide, that he could do it on his own. If you think that your good works are sufficient, that merits some kind of righteousness, 
You're in danger of being cast out to the place that Jesus said is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll find when that phrase is used in Scripture, it refers to only one place, hell. Hell. If you, listen, listen carefully, if you have not been born again, you could be one breath, one step from hell. You must be born again. See, the first step in the membership process is this. You must be born again. You must be born from above. I don't want to leave anybody on the edge of the cliff. So if the Holy Spirit has shown you that you've not been born again, what should you do? Right here, right now, ask the Lord Jesus to save you. Ask God to grant you the repentance that leads to life. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Jesus has promised that all who come to him in repentant faith, he will not turn away. You must, you must, you must be born again.